The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Next week, we leave for the front. The object will be to kill as many Frenchmen as possible. Naturally, they are going to try and kill as many Russians as possible. If we kill more Frenchmen, we win. If they kill more Russians, they win. What do we win? What do we win, Private? Imagine your loved ones conquered by Napoleon and forced to live under French rule. Do you want them to eat that rich food and those heavy sauces? No. no. Do you want them to have souffle every meal and croissant? No. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 13, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today. Uh, I want to first begin by apologizing about last week's show. I know it hasn't been put up online yet, but it will be there shortly. There were some technical difficulties with our online um, apparatus last week here at the station, and it's all been uh, fixed up and working, and I've got a copy of last week's show now, so it should be up shortly for those of you who have contacted me regarding that. But welcome to today's show, where the subject's going to be. Later on in the show, we're going to get a bit silly. Haven't done this in a while for the last half of the show. We're going to be talking about the jokes on us, humor as protest and dissent, and we'll be looking at everything from poetry to bumper stickers to uh, daffy definitions relating to politics. Might give you a smile, and then again, might give you a frown, but we'll see how that works out. I also want to talk a little bit in the first half of the program you know, we've heard a lot about the the cell phone ban that McGinty's brought in. I want to, uh, I'm opposed to it to begin with, and I'll, we'll get that and get to that later. But I want to talk about how that those bans, I think, fundamentally erode mor- the morality of society at a, in a very fundamental way. And I'll discuss that when we get to it. But first, five one nine six six one thirty six hundred, of course, is the number you can call, and you can email us at just write chrw at gmail dot com, which is exactly what. Marco did with uh, an email I received this week, and I'll just read it to you because he was suggesting a topic that we should discuss today, and that's just what we're going to do for the first little bit. But caught me on a good day because I uh, uh, seem to have these spots open now to answer some more of the mail that we've been getting. And Marco writes, he says, Hi, Bob, I really enjoy your show. I feel that the topics you discuss are diverse, relevant, and important. It's amazing how you're able to get all the issues for the day addressed in such a short time, so kudos to you. Actually, Marcos, it's not such a short time. I spend at least 12 hours preparing for each show. But, of course, we only have an hour to deliver it. He says, it's refreshing to hear someone with a rational voice in what seems like such an irrational social and political climate. I was sifting through the news online this morning, writes Marco, and came across an interesting CTV article about the topic of Afghanistan and how the people there feel much more pessimistic about the direction of where their country is heading than when the Taliban was in power. I know you've discussed Afghanistan before a few times on your show, but perhaps you may be able to address this specific article, or one similar to it, 
on your show as food for thought because I can just hear the pacifist screaming. And here's the link. And he sent me the link, and I went and checked it out. And uh, I'll share that with you in a moment. It's true, we, we, we have discussed Afghanistan a few times on the show. In fact, uh, it was interesting when I went back, I noticed that those shows, because it's a little out of my expertise often, were the ones where I've had guests in to discuss uh, the story we had in John Thompson from the McKenzie Institute, if you haven't checked that out. Um, by the way, these shows are all still available online at justrightmedia.org. And we had a sergeant major, or uh, yeah, sergeant from uh, Arthur Mayer, who who appeared on the show just a week after he had returned from Afghanistan, about a year ago, I think. And of course, Salim Mansour, when he was on the show on 9/11, talking about some of the ramifications of that. But here's the survey results that I found when I went to look at the link provided by Marco on the CTV site. And it says Afghan, Afghan, sorry, increasingly pessimistic according to a survey. It says a new survey suggests Afghans are increasingly unimpressed with the direction their country is headed. And more than a third of its participants claim to be worse off today than when the Taliban ruled the the war-torn country. And this is an article by Jeff Nixon. Uh, The survey released Tuesday, this would be last week, and published by the nonprofit Asia Foundation, suggests that a clear trend towards greater pessimism pessimism has has emerged among Afghans in the past two years. Nearly 6,600 Afghans were interviewed for a 105-question Afghanistan in 2008, a survey of the Afghan people, which included respondents from each of the country's 34 provinces. More than 500 Afghans helped collect the information for the survey over a period of several weeks in the past summer, which was the fourth such survey in Afghanistan, published by the U.S.-based AF since 2004. Among the findings, uh, the survey suggested Afghans have become more pessimistic about the state of their country. 33% said they agreed with the direction Afghanistan was headed, which is, or 38%, sorry, which is surprising, compared to 44% in 2006. 32% of Afghans said they disagreed with the direction Afghanistan was headed, versus 21% in 2006. 36% of Afghans said they're less prosperous today than they w- were when they lived under Taliban rule, compared to 26% who made the same claim in 2006. In general, Afghans cited security issues, unemployment, high prices, corruption, and a poor economy as the major problems facing their country. They would have thought bombs and more would have been number one. According to the survey, security was the biggest factor shaping Afghan news. And of course, you know, if you named all of these issues right here, you could say that these are some of the major issues facing us in North America. Security, unemployment, high prices, corruption, and a poor economy. It sounds like a place I've, I've been to before. But AF Representative George Varganese told CTV in a telephone interview from New York that many Afghans take a significant issue with problems affecting their livelihood as well. A lack of economic growth opportunities and problems with unemployment, he said, are two areas where Afghans say their government could do better. Sitting people where it really hurts in their stomachs and wallets, he said. It seems like they're better able to cope with, social, with local insecurity than with the lack of jobs at the local level, etc., of Afghans told the survey they believed there were few jobs available in their local area, with only 7% believing their local job market had improved in the past two years. And then, of course, uh, they say it's almost inevitable when you have a deteriorating military and economic situation without serious improvements in aid and governance that the Afghan people act accordingly, they were told by Anthony Kordsman, a Washington-based expert on the conflict. 
And in Ottawa, Ambassador Omar Samad said such surveys are probably the best means to gauge the opinions of Afghanistan's people. What I read from this survey is how that concern about security affects their livelihoods, etc., etc. And he says that he thinks it's a fairly accurate description. In fact, I saw the same thing in The Economist. I have a copy of The Economist article here called A Surge of Pessimism Relating to Afghanistan. appeared on October 18th, Economist. And uh, even though they say that, you know, the Taliban's been more active and all of their attacks have been repelled, uh, they're able to hold them back, etc., etc., but they've just got too much on their plate right now. And they say that, uh, this is The Economist, this is much too gloomy. America shows no sign of giving up as the Soviet Union did in 1989. The Americans worry not just about the Taliban, but also about their own NATO allies, and particularly Britain. And, of course, locally, they see foreign force as, as part of the problem, not the solution. And uh, a surge of troops would merely increase Afghan, you know, Afghani's sense of occupation, which, of course, is true, which, which, by the way, both presidential candidates said that they would do. So, you know, I imagine if you asked almost anyone in any country today how, about how they feel about the future, most would say that they're a little more pessimistic about the past. It's just you can see it in the economy. You can see what's happening out there. And I have to admit, Afghanis have every reason <laughs> to be pessimistic about their future. Uncertainty and instability are their future, regardless of who's going to be in power. And with the election of Obama, who has vowed to send more troops into Afghanistan, I'd be pessimistic about the short-term future, too, if I were in Afghanistan. And if the world financial crisis affects the rich nations in the way that we've been watching and seeing in the economy, you've got to understand the poor nations will be even worse off. If there's anybody out there who thinks that the Taliban could have insulated Afghanistan from the subprime banking crisis, uh, hey, the number here to call is 519-661-3600 to make your case. You just do that, okay? <laughs> um, and any, you know, you hear this a lot. Any sentimental references to the, you know, the good old days of the Taliban are, are generally fueled by this fear of the unknown and uncertainty. You know, to hearken back to the Taliban days is to ignore <laughs> cause and effect. The actions of the Taliban are among those most responsible for what's happening happening to, in Afghanistan today. Uh, you know, I know there's still some German people around today who hearken back to the good old Hitler years before the war, before they knew all about all the bad things. And without ever connecting what Hitler was doing during those years, you know, they don't connect the dots uh, that all those, quote, good years were being paid for at the expense of their futures and what happened. You know, it was kind of inevitable. And I've witnessed this phenomenon in other contexts, in fact. Uh, uh, I was really surprised to see it the first few times I saw it. When, uh, for example, when confronted directly many citizens of countries that we might call totalitarian and have utterly unacceptable ways of life, according to our way of looking at things, you know, they act at, at shock if you suggest to them that they're not free to do as they please or that their society isn't quite up to what it should be. I remember seeing this for the first time where I really saw it in spades on, the, I think it was a PBS show aired way back in the 1980s. I think I've still got it on a beta tape kicking around somewhere. And there were a group of Russian university students in a rare exchange of ideas between other students from the West. And you could tell they were outraged and they didn't, you know, they felt as free to discuss ideas and stuff in their country as the Westerners were claiming. It was an interesting contrast to see. It just goes to show uh, how you know, malleable and adaptable people are. We can adapt ourselves to incredible, incredible circumstances, be they good or bad. But I think it's a dangerous thing to read 
you know, too much into how people respond to subjective questions about subjective feelings. But the biggest mistake we could make as Canadians, I think, is to use such feelings as an excuse to abandon a mission that we, and by we I mean the UN, it's not just Canada, uh, you know, all of us got into this together. We we set out to undertake it in the first place, and uh, we did more than we, you know, we didn't just go, go there just to fight a war. We, we decided, well, we're going to try and rebuild countries, which I think was the fatal mistake. Once you start saying that, you're committed for a century. And in fact, there have been one or two politicians that actually have said that. So that's about all I can say about, uh, you know, the mood in Afghanistan today. I think the mood in Afghanistan is very reflective of the mood in many countries, although certainly at a less desirable level than any of us would like to experience, that's for sure. going to take a quick break now for a, for a smile, and when we come back on the other side, I'm all angry about this silly, you know, cell phone ban that they're going to have. And I don't even own a cell phone, but I want to talk about that, and we'll talk right after this quick break. How's it going? All right. I'm sorry I can't hear since the Gulf. How's it going? All right, kind of don't. So... I got one of those phones with an MP3 player. Anybody got one of those? It's got um, the MP3 player, it's got the, the organizer, the email, internet, a video recorder, and a voice recorder. It's a bit confusing. I was staring at it the other day. My wife said, Are you on the phone? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I never, did, uh, never really did bother to get around to getting a cell phone yet because I'm always near a landline. I'm not on the road that much, so I imagine this is a bigger issue for those of you who are on the road a lot of times. saw an editorial cartoon in the uh, National Post, October 29th. It was funny. It had, has four panels in it. I'll describe it to you. Uh, it's got this Ontario car and a woman driving it in each of the panels. In the first panel, you see her putting on her, her makeup in the mirror. In the second panel, you see her uh, having a coffee and a, and a you know, a muffin or something like that. In the third panel, you see her go- driving, all while driving, by the way, uh, going through a road map and reading to the side. And then in the fourth panel, you see her angry husband standing there waiting for her, and he says, you're late. Why didn't you call? And she says, I was driving. <laughs> now, if you don't understand what that joke's about, you will after you hear this. Welcome back to the show, 519-661-3600, the number to call. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Government bans and the erosion of morality. People don't see the connection often. I try to draw the line for them. I'll give it another shot now. Ontario to ban use of cell phones while driving can save lives, reads the headline in the October 29th National Post. And they report, quote, emailing, texting, or talking on a handheld cell phone while driving will be banned in Ontario under new legislation introduced yesterday, which would be... I guess October 28th. Minister of Transportation Jim Bradley unveiled the proposed bill saying drivers could face fines of up to $500 if caught chatting or dialing on an electronic gadget that requires the use of hands. Research shows that drivers using handheld devices are four times more likely to be in a crash than drivers who are focused on the road, Mr. Bradley said earlier in the day on the steps of Queen's Park. We know that a ban on handheld devices can save lives. Our hands on the wheel, eyes on the road bill 
would make it illegal to use any sort of communication or entertainment device that is held in their hand, he said. Listen to what he said there. Our hands on the wheel, eyes on the road bill. I'll be coming back to that a little later. Under the proposal, drivers caught breaking the cell phone law would not lose demerit points and calls to 911 would be exempt. The legislation would also ban tinkering with iPods, portable DVD players, or laptop computers while behind the wheel. But drivers would still be allowed to chat and drive if they use a hands-free device, an allowance that many experts believe weakens the ban. Evelyn Vigilis, an auto, sta auto safety expert and professor at the University of Western Ontario's Department of Family Medicine, said a total prohibition on cell phone activity is needed. Research shows it's the attention that's paid, not whether it's hands-free or not hands-free, said the professor, a member of the Canadian Association of Road Safety Professionals. So you'd think these guys would know a little better, eh? If you're dividing your attention, something's going to be shortchanged. A report released last month by the Ontario Medical Association backs that up, claiming there's no difference between the hands-free and handheld cell phones when it comes to cognitive distraction. The legislation also would permit the use of popular GPS systems, provided that they are mounted on the dashboard. Less than a year ago, Premier Dalton McGuinty dismissed the idea of banning the use of handheld cell phones for drivers, saying that such laws, or saying laws already on the books, dealt sufficiently with distracted driving. At the time, he said such a law would lead down a slippery legislative slope. And boy, are they going for a slide right now. I guess one of the issues then becomes, so where do we draw the line, he asked. Do we ban coffee dr or coffee and drinking in cars, Mr. McGinty asked. And then the London Free Press reports on the same day, they reported the same story, but a little extra on that. Under their article, it says drivers could face $500 fines. Uh, it reads, Transportation Minister Jim Bradley's bill, if adopted by the legislature, would mean the average driver would either have to go hands-free or hang up the habit. You should have both hands on the wheel, Bradley said. And there's an emphasis on both hands on the wheel. The legislation doesn't outlaw other kinds of distractions, such as putting on makeup or eating, and hence the cartoon in the National Post. <laughs> and, of course, uh, here's a letter to the editor by Laurie McConnell, London Free Press, uh, just the day after. Smoking should be included in handheld devices ban. And she says, I wholeheartedly wholeheartedly agree with the ban on cell phones and other handheld devices by the driver while driving. Clearly this will reduce and may eliminate accidents. However, I'd love to see the ban extended to smokers. I'll bet there are hundreds of accidents and deaths caused each year as a result of drivers who smoke. And then there's this article again. So far, everyone has been in favor of the ban and I'm still continuing with people who are in favor of the ban. This one by Kelly McParland that appeared in uh, Counterpoint in the National Post. And uh, here she writes, Silenci or, yeah, Silencing the tools of stupidity, banning behind-the-wheel cell phone use just makes sense, she writes. The best reason to ban the use of cell phones and other handheld devices while driving is the most obvious. You can't ban stupidity so you have to try and take away its tools. What an interesting piece of logic there. Stupidity is what we're talking about here. Stupid things, dangerous things, done by people because their attention isn't on their driving. Let's look at some of the reasons opponents of cell phone bans commonly offer for their position. And she cites this one. If you ban cell phones, you have to ban drinking coffee, eating jelly donuts, or putting on lipstick while driving because those are distracting too. 
And she responds, I just love this argument. You can't ban people from doing all stupid things, so you shouldn't ban them from doing any stupid things. It's a bit like opposing warning signs on thin ice on the basis that people will just find another accident to get themselves into. Uh, I think that's a totally misappropriate example, but we'll carry on with that a bit later. Here's another article she says, or another argument she says that the uh, opponents of the ban use. Quote, it will be difficult to enforce. You'll need armies of police to ensure drivers aren't surreptitiously yakking on their phones. And she answers, no, you won't. You don't need armies of police to ensure people don't smoke in elevators because everyone knows it's not allowed and so they don't do it. The same goes for cell phones. Once it's illegal, most people will comply. A few may ignore the ban, but as with smoking in elevators, they're likely to face unpleasant reactions from the folks who can see them disobeying the law and aren't subtle in expressing their displeasure. There's already a law against dangerous driving. Why not just enforce it? You could say the same thing for drunk drivers. Banning cell phones is preventative. It stops from of the, some of the dangerous driving from happening. The most cogent case against the Ontario ban is the McGuinty government. Oh, it, the McGuinty government has produced legislation filled with inconsistencies. You can't play with your GPS, but you can try to read a paper map. You can't fiddle with your iPod, but you can poke at the radio. You can blather away on a hands-free phone, but not a handheld phone. Fine, it comes down to the same thing. You can't stop people doing all the dangerous things they do in the car, but you can stop them from doing some. And when you can, you should, she concludes. National Post editorial. Only one I saw so far that took an opposite tack. And this is the paper's own editorial, October 30th. And the headline, it was a long one. I'm only going to get into these couple lines. Distractions of plenty, it reads. According to the U.S. National Highway Safety Administration, the biggest distraction to drivers, one that is six times more likely to cause an accident than the act of dialing a cell phone, is driver drowsiness. Why then is Ontario Transport Minister Jim Bradley not seeking to outlaw nodding off behind the wheel, or at least implementing a public awareness campaign about the dangers of operating a vehicle when tired? Of course, he should know they've been doing that for years. In fact, they call it, you know, you're considered... um, impaired when you're tired and they can charge you with impaired driving that might well do more to make ontario's roads safer than his call while driving ban introduced in the ontario legislature it is unwise while driving to do anything that takes one's hands away from the wheel or attention away from the road talking on the cell phone included responsible drivers should avoid as many distractions as they can whatever the state says they can and cannot do passing laws that do not or that do no public good, while at the same time restricting individual freedoms and superseding personal responsibility, is a futile exercise in symbolism over substance. Ontario's government should scrap its ban, end quote. Well, I certainly agree with that last one, and pretty well disagree with all of the other comments and, and actions that the government has taken. I mean, here we are in a situation such as we have today with all the things that governments should be concerned with, and they spend time on this kind of stuff. Now, here's some of just some of the things that I see completely wrong thinking about this. And I can't dis- disagree with some of the obvious points. Yeah, sure, if you took <laughs> if if you had fewer dangerous drivers on the road, you have fewer accidents, sure. We'll get to that argument in a minute, but again, same thing that they that politicians like to do. They always blame an object instead of the agent or the actor or the person who's responsible for the action. And this just deflects from dealing with the real problem. In other words, 
like that, like the writer said, you, you haven't dealt, you haven't dealt with stupidity. You still left the stupidity in place. You just took one object away from the stupid person, and you haven't dealt at all with their stupidity. Now, I totally disagree with the premise that using a handheld device while driving is a dangerous act in and of itself. That's absolutely ridiculous. It is not, and if you want proof, there are millions upon millions upon millions of drivers on cell phones who have never gotten into an accident, who are on the phone, handheld or otherwise, driving all the time. In fact, if, I, if there were the people who I would think would have the most problem with this, it's the occasional driver who, who would not normally have a hands-free phone in their car because they don't spend that much time in their car. So they only have this, this phone they carry around with them. And they don't want to go to the expense of putting in all the extra apparatus just for the odd couple of trips they may make a year. And so I think it's ridiculous to punish people. Like It's, it's just like gun registration and gun control. But um, Now, the thing that is, of course the the problem here is taking your attention off the road while driving that's the issue and uh, now when i when i hear also what the politicians are saying i had to ask myself what is their objective is it really to target the device or to enforce this two hands on a steering wheel rule which is really weird because if it's the latter i'm in big trouble because I, I drive with one hand on the wheel most of the time i'm one of those drivers that if i put my my hands in the 10 you know, 10 o'clock two o'clock position I start driving a little erratically. My hands are like uh, always going back and forth. I do it occasionally, but uh, most of the time, uh, my smoothest driving is I have my arm over the back of the seat or something like that, and the other one I'm driving, and that's when I'm most comfortable. Now, if I have to keep both hands on the wheel all the time, if that's what you know the police are looking for, well, then I'm in trouble and I don't even have a cell phone. Now, we already do have the necessary laws to address careless driving, and many of the penalties are quite severe. So what changes, really? What's really changed when we target specific devices? Um, I don't know how the average person is going to keep track. You know, what do you do, keep a list of stuff in your car? They put out, you know, here is a list of prohibited devices for this month. Uh, check your list before putting your arm over your seat and touching it. <laughs> you know, you can fiddle around with the CD player if it's mounted, but if the CD player is sitting on the seat beside you, still plugged into the same system, you can't fiddle with that one. It, it's It's just... What it does, it gives the police the power to charge perfectly safe drivers for doing an act that they could not charge them with before. Isn't that really what's changed? And you know why they couldn't charge them with anything before? Because they weren't doing anything wrong, including unsafe driving. So now you've got this legislation that can go after safe drivers. And boy, they're easier to catch than the unsafe ones. So that's a moneymaker for the police. And just like gun control, how many, how many billions did they waste on a registry? I don't even know how that's metaphysically possible. So, you know, now police can charge you irrespective of how attentive you are to the road, based solely on the device you may happen to have in your hand. And when police have powers like that, it makes the police something... I think, to be feared in a, in, a, in a way you don't want to be afraid of them. Rather, like, you know, than being considered a peace officer who's there to protect you, all of a sudden you've got to be careful what you're touching, where you're looking. Uh, you know, it's just terrible. I, I feel sorry for our police sometimes. And w when you get disrespectful laws such as this, is it any wonder that our more serious laws are also disrespected? If you're going to find somebody 500 bucks for touching a cell phone, the other guy who's robbed somebody and beat him up, he gets like $250 fine. Where, where, where is the... How do you equate those things? I did a whole show on that, you know, passing fines and punishments for political purposes. That's why our whole justice system is out of whack. 
And saving lives, by the way, is no reason to prohibit any kind of responsible, peaceful behavior. You can save lives by prohibiting driving itself, if you want to be that silly. And, of course, they oh, that's a stupid argument. No stupider than the one banning cell phones. Give me a break. You know, or, you know, you could ban any activity that carries a risk considered to be greater than sitting in a chair, let's say. Uh, statistically, you could prove, and you can prove it, that your prohibition would work at saving lives. Yes, you could prove it every time, because statistics can prove things like that. Sit still, don't do anything, don't move. You're a le lot less likely to get hit by a moving object than somebody who's moving. But here's the basic thing. Every time a law chips away at a perfectly rational choice that we're allowed to make, the ultimate moral fiber of society is also chipped away, one little piece at a time. Individual responsibility, you know, they always preach it as an ideal in this country. You taught about it in school. But in practice, we choose to punish the innocent and reward the guilty, and that's what this kind of legislation does. And regrettably, I'm afraid, this country's populated with sheep, who you heard from all the people just getting on, oh, the, the ban's not strong enough, we have to ban more, oh, I don't want to live in a country with people like that. Come on, you're the guys I've got to be protected from. Where, where, where is the politicians to protect me from you? Uh, you, you know, they'll support prohibition on any activity that they disagree with personally. And not only do they support their oppressors, but they encourage them to oppress us even more. In a free society, your government would protect you from such people and would punish them accordingly. But since we're not that anymore, but an increasingly regulated and controlled, just tiny bits of fascism always tossed in at us, Individual justice has been abandoned to their whole process of social justice. You can't get the individual, get everybody. And, you know, the idea suggested by Kelly McParland that one must, quote, ban the tools and, quote, not the behavior, which is stupidity, uh, to address a social problem is the biggest social problem we have these days. And, you know, let me translate that for you. Don't go after murderers, go after guns. Don't arrest dangerous drivers, go after their cell phones. Don't lock up rapists, ban pornography. Don't charge people with littering, ban plastic bottles. After all, whether a person is good or bad doesn't matter, as our email writer who supported handgun bans last week argued. doesn't matter whether you're good or bad, right? And that's exactly the kind of belief that leads to a society that is anything but free. Because only a free society can be a moral society, and only a moral society is a free society. And that's the end of me being serious today, because we're going to take a break right now for some messages. And when we come back on the other side, the joke's on us, and we'll be taking a look at humor as protest and dissent, and hearing some interesting jokes and anecdotes, sayings, parables, all kinds of interesting things. Be back right after this. Come on, quarters tomorrow at three. I can't. Please. It's immoral. What time? So who is to say what is moral? Morality is subjective. Subjectivity is objective. Moral notions imply attributes to substances which exist only in relational duality. Not as an essential extension of ontological existence. Can we not talk about sex so much? Computer, I wish to know more about humor. Why certain combinations of words and actions make humans laugh? Source material on that subject is extensive. Please specify. Animated presentation, humanoid, interaction required. 
physical humor, cerebral or general raconteur. Of all performers available, who is considered funniest? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. You've been great. As a matter of fact, I'd like to take you all home with me. Unfortunately, I took the last audience home and there's no more room. <laughs> but thank you, really. Thank you. Hey, and thank you for bringing me here. What's up? Mr. Comic, I wish to know what is funny. It's funny. I don't know. It's a matter of opinion, I guess. Uh, Tip O'Neill in a dress. Some people say words that end with a K are funny. Uh, a briefcase that looks like a fish. Personally, I find that hysterical. Tip O'Neill, accessing. 20th century male, politician, overweight, wearing female clothing, carrying a valise that looks like a fish. So, the juxtaposition of gender and an amphibian briefcase is funny. Well, I think whatever makes you laugh is funny. Nothing makes me laugh. I wish to learn. Well, uh, how much time do we have here? Unlimited. We're going to need it, because you, pal, are a tough room. Yeah, our time isn't unlimited, but... Uh... You know, humor is a dangerous and risky thing. By the way, welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600. If you can know any good political jokes or send them to us by email, justrightchrw at gmail.com. But, you know, humor is a dangerous and risky thing. We've seen that certainly in the news recently. What's funny to one person might be completely offensive to another person. And... I think that's because behind humor often hides a truth that is otherwise not discussed out in the open. You know, we've seen uh, a classic historical representation of uh, this kind of tolerance um, uh, within another medium or arena. Remember, what were they called? They called them the fools, you know, the king's court, who are often, I guess, the equivalent of the political cartoonists of their time, if you would. And the fool in the king's court could get away, oh, with saying a lot of things that might have related to the politics of the time without fear of the king's direct reprisal because, well, he was a fool, right? You didn't, it would be unjust if the king picked on the fool. And there was sort of an unspoken agreement there that the fool could get away with saying certain things. It's funny because uh, Woody Allen played the fool in a couple, literally the fool in a couple of his movies. And, uh, as a form of protest and dissent, of course, humor can be delivered in many forms, uh, from outright slapstick and tomfoolery to sarcasm and double entendre and all kinds of things that people might regard funny or not. So one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is how so many audiences listening to comics will laugh at very biting jokes that are actually about them, you know? So some of the funniest and most sensitive stuff is the stuff that's kind of a self, self-criticism and introspective. And uh, that's just one of the reasons why I like to say that the joke is on us a lot of the times. So here's a potpourri of humorous, uh, not ha-ha humorous all the time, but expressions and the odd parable of just basically about the political and philosophical world in which we live. And I gleaned the following from a variety of sources, so this comes with a bit of a warning, just like the one that precedes the show, I guess. You know, the opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this broadcaster, but I still think they're funny, even when I know the joke might be on me. 
So, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I think I might have... Uh, now, first I'll start off with some daffy dif, uh, political definitions. I got some of these out of a book called Lucifer's Lexicon and a host of others, and I think the odd one or two might be my own. But I don't recall, I remember going through, uh, putting this together many years ago, about 15, 20 years ago, for a newsletter I was publishing. And uh, we basically did a, a lexicon of strange definitions that were related to politics or philosophy. So uh, I'm just going to, I don't know how many times I'll get through it. I decided that a good way of doing this part would just be to try, try and go through the alphabet and see how many times we can get through the alphabet. I'm not going to do this steadily. I'll be jumping all over. But here's our first run through the alphabet, and this is uh, some daffy political definitions, okay? A is for affirmative action, the white man's new burden. B is for B1, a vitamin essential to the health of the military-industrial complex. C is for candidate, someone who stands for what he thinks voters will fall for. <laughs> D is for definition. Interestingly, a word that's not a definition. Egalitarian is one who cannot see the difference between a hero and a zero, a champ and a chump, a winner and a wiener, or a king and a kong. <laughs> F is for Fabian, a creeping socialist. G is for good citizen, an obedient slave. H is for happiness, a wild goose which everyone has an inalienable right to chase, or secondary definition, that agreeable sensation arising from contemplating the misery of another. <laughs> I is for idealist, one who hopes to keep the politics out of politics. J is for jailer, one who is his brother's keeper. Ooh. <laughs> K is for kill, the political way of creating a vacancy without nominating a successor. <laughs> L is for labor union, an association of workers organized to advance the interests of the union organizers. M is for marijuana, a substance which can cause deterioration of mental functioning and a tendency towards paranoia in chronic non-users. <laughs> N is for nostalgia, the ability to recall the past fondly despite the facts. I often refer to that as sentimentality, too. O is for otherwise. Some people are wise, <laughs> some otherwise. P is for politician. The fellow who's got what it takes to take what you've got. That's always been one of my favorites. Q is for quotation. Another person's words erroneously repeated. R is for responsibility. A detachable burden easily shifted to the soldiers of shoulders of God, fate, fortune, luck, or one's neighbor. In the days of astrology, it was customary to unload one's responsibility upon a star. <laughs> S is for security, which is freedom from freedom. T is for tax, the only thing known to defy the law of gravity. U is for utopia, the best of all impossible worlds. Also a byproduct of myopia. And V is for vote, the instrument and symbol of a freeman's power to make fool of himself and wreck his own country. W is for war, a byproduct of the arts of peace. And Z or Z, depending on where you're listening, is for zeal, a certain nervous disorder afflicting the young and inexperienced. <laughs> so there's the first round through A to Z. Next to the light of my found, I thought these were funny. I had to keep them. These are a year old now, National Post, May 7th. And if you recall back then, um, 
they had a contest because at, at that point, that was when the federal government announced that they were going to ban incandescent light bulbs by the year 2012. And so the National Post ran a, a contest. And the contest was Ode to the Bulb. And people wrote their poetry and sent in samples. And apparently they did this for a couple of days. I only, got, I only had one of the sheets. And unfortunately, I, I didn't get the one that had the winner on it. So if the others are even better than these, some of these are really, really well done. I, I won't get through all of them today, but I'll sample a few. And the one thing you'll miss, of course, is you don't see them in print. So if you look at them, some of the spelling, you know, they're all in proper stanzas and everything. And some of the spelling is like Old English and that stuff. So you'll miss a bit of that. But, but here are some. And this, of course, is about the demise of our incandescent light bulb. And this one's from Jean Reddy, who wrote, who wrote her poem from Waterdown, Ontario. And she wrote, quote, When at night I go to bed, I take my paper to be read. I turn on my trusty light. The round little bulb earns so bright. Soon I hear, so I've been told, this little light won't be sold. I can't believe someone thought this idea would save a lot. Go back to the drawing board, I say. Find your savings a different way. Throw the scheme out the door. Let's not talk about it anymore. <laughs> and that was one from Jean Reddy. Here's another one from Gladys Zarecki from Ottawa, who wrote, Oh, bulb incandescent, how tragic thy descent. Once revered for thy warmth and thy light, with deceit have your brothers usurped thy birthright. How unforgiving is man who rejects thee today. Gone is his memory of your heat and your roundness. Gone is his respect for your feminine mystique. O bulb incandescent, brainchild of Edison, hailed at the time for bringing light to the night, hidden are thee now. How shameful and indecent. How insincere is man who accuses thee of waste, who attacks your integrity and mocks your efficiency. How uncompassionate is he who fails to value your existence. How fickle is man, O bulb incandescent, fickle and fragile as thy solitary filament. How ruthless he sweeps away heroines of days past. Man took thee for granted till you burnt yourself out. And though poets remain forever loyal and devoted, we are repudiated by those who conjured your demise. Hear ye all, ye sensitive souls, sing her praise forevermore to the bulb incandescent. We dedicate this ode. May she rest in peace in her heavenly abode. <laughs> That's kind of cute. And uh, here's another round. Let's get another round in here just through the alphabet before we take our next quick break. I uh, don't have all the letters now because there isn't, uh, you can't get that many definitions for every letter in the alphabet two, three, four, and five times over. But uh, here we'll try again. A is for April Fool, which is just the March Fool with another month added to his folly. B is for bureaucracy, a perpetual inertia machine. C is for censor, one who enlightens the world by burning books. D is for democracy, government of the sheep by the shepherds for the wolves. <laughs> e is for election. You don't have to fool all of the people all of the time. During elections is sufficient. F is for fine-tuning the economy, otherwise known as massive government disruption and ultimate destruction of the economy. You know, we wrote this like 20 years ago. Does this sound familiar? Is something, something going on in the news today about this? Don't have from one for G this time around, but got one for H. H is for hats. Political candidates need three hats, one to cover their heads with, one to toss into the ring, and one to talk through. I is for intellectual ammunition, which are verbal bullets for objectivists who want to shoot their mouths off. 
<laughs> blank out cartridges are also available at your local ammo supplier. I think uh, Ayn Rand fans will understand that one. Nothing for J this time around, but L is for logic, the art of thinking and reasoning in strict accordance with the limitations and incapacities of human misunderstanding. <laughs> M is for me, the objectionable case of I. N is for nothing, which is really something if you stop to think about it. O is for opinion molder, one who sculpts by using stupidity as a medium. <laughs> Speaking of the person who wanted to get rid of stupidity, I guess you can't sell that without having a stupidity as a medium. P is for political deal, which means the end of the political ideal. Don't have one for Q here, but R is for right. The legitimate authority to be, do, or have, as the right to be a king, the right to do one's neighbor, or the right to have measles, and the like. <laughs> S is for self-evident, evident to oneself and to no one else. T is for tariff, an import tax designed to protect domestic producers from the greed of their consumers. That's as far as I got this time around. So we're going to take another break for a quick smile, and when we come back, we'll have some more for you, and we'll carry right on after this. I'm sorry, folks. I'm not going to hide my politics. You know, I'm originally from Montreal. I'm a Quebecer. I'm an English-speaking Quebecer. Excuse a frigging moi. <laughs> yeah, it's all about language. You know, and it's such bull... My family's been in Montreal since 1654. Some places still won't accept my money in English. Tell me that's not insulting, huh? Six pièces soixante cents. Look, pal. You see this bill? It says Sir John A. McDonald. Not Sir John Kiskadzee McDonald, eh? Yeah, he ain't seen squirrely. You see this picture? That's the queen, not the Benunda friggin' Carnival, right now. Time for a little economic reality here. Have you seen Star Trek? The entire damn universe speaks English. What's up Quebec's ass still? You can get a Klingon to talk to you in English. I talk too much about Quebec, folks, but it is a political hotspot in our country, and I'm concerned with the future of our country. Do you think we're coming apart as a country? <laughs> Do you think it could be our apathy, perhaps? Look at you. <laughs> well, the Jays have got two pennants. Beer's cold. Why screw up the system? You know? <laughs> Jesus. Couldn't be any more Canadian unless we had twist-off heads. <laughs> it's a beer joke. <laughs> Where the hell are you from? Easter Island? Move once in a while. You're freaking me out. You know what the problem with our country is, folks? Besides our money, which is embarrassing enough at the best of times. All right, the loony was fun for a while watching Americans trying to peel off the foil to get the chocolate, but that wears thin. <laughs> here folks there's a good question <laughs> ron we've been through this all right sir no more questions i'm just saying americans make me proud to be canadian quite frankly huh in comparison oh yeah you're back folks sure we're the loved people on this planet we we're welcome anywhere i can go to lebanon play tourists take pictures of blown up buildings they grab me throw me in a car you're a prisoner of that terrorist group i'm a canadian canadian you know my cousin abib drives taxi in toronto you know <laughs> Here, take picture of you. Hold gun. Go ahead. 
Take a picture of me with a gun. I look scary for your friends. Uh, good to be a Canadian, that's all I'm saying. And I think it's okay to make fun of Americans. They make fun of us, we make fun of them. It's all good-spirited. We're friends, we're neighbors, we're allies. My only complaint is the further south you go in the States, stupider the jokes get about Canada. You get that around George, Alabama, all you hear is, Wow, you guys all live in igloos. <laughs> hey, just wait till he asks us for clean water. Sorry, it's all in housing. <laughs> you dorks, yeah, what is this? Maybe in the spring we'll thaw you out a living room. <laughs> Until then, drink your own urine. <laughs> Manifest this destiny. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, we call that free trade now. So, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> oh yeah, free trade. Remember free trade? Well, that's the next subject here, and this this is a uh, takeoff on. Uh, it's actually written by a friend of mine, Robert Vaughn, who was a two-time trustee here in the city of London. Many of you might remember him, and he wrote this for the same magazine I published, Consent, back in the 90s. And it was just uh, maybe a bit earlier. It was during a period that we were, you know, free trade was a big issue, which it's becoming again because of the economy. It always does. And uh, Robert put this together. Of course, this is based on William Shakespeare's uh, To Be or Not to Be speech, his famous speech. And he wrote this a little bit, uh, this little different version of it, and he says, uh, you know, by Robert Vaughn with apologies to William Shakespeare, and here's how it goes. And it's called Free Trade or Not Free Trade. Free trade or not free trade, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the joy and pride while creating outrageous fortunes, or to take arms against a sea of money-grubbing yanks, and by opposing, end them to socialize, to trade, no more, and by socialize to say we end the risks and the responsibilities that freedom is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly wished by Mel Hertig. To be free, to trade, to be free perchance to take the risks, aye, there's the rub. For in being nationalists, what risks we take in isolating ourselves must give us pause. There's the respect that calamity makes of free trade, for who would bear the hard work and time the responsibility? the proud man's noble efforts, the pangs of making a decent buck, the government at bay, the vitality of business, and the wealth that the worthy make by virtue of living in a free country. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a proud free life but that dread of statism, that soon-to-be-discovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the free mind, and should make us bear free trade than to fly to protectionism that we know will lead to recession. Thus free trade does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of nationalism is sickled o'er with the pale cast of socialism, and enterprises of once great acumen and determination with the wave of liberalism their dreams turn awry and lose the name freedom. Boy, that almost reads better the second time around, doesn't it? And here's something a little different. This is out of the National Post uh, by Warren Kinsella. Uh, how old is this thing? August 23rd, about a year old. But uh, talking about bumper stickers, some of the more popular bumper stickers that were seen in the United States during a period, I guess, that he was down there. And, uh, or as he calls them, bumper stickers to be seen on the highways of America. And here's a bit of a sampling. And, of course, uh, there was an election going on about a year ago. This first batch is obviously about that. But here's a few bumper stickers he ran into. Well, ho hopefully he didn't run into. Um, quote, once I, was a young and, once I was young and idealistic. Now I'm Republican. <laughs> here's another one. We have the best Congress money can buy. 
uh, another vote Democrat. It's easier than getting a job. Uh, another one, enlighten a liberal, shine a flashlight under his rock. <laughs> the road to hell is paved with good Republicans. <laughs> Hail to the thief. And then he says, this is his personal favorite, <laughs> re-elect Al Gore. <laughs> That's funny. And he says, there are also many, many celebrated bumper stickers that are unrelated to politics, such as... Now, I don't think these are unrelated to politics. I think these are more political. It's funny, you know, just reading that sentence, I find that some people think politics only has to do with elections and electing a particular candidate. It goes far deeper than that. It's about, it's about the ideas and the policies you're, you're doing. But, uh, and this is what these are about. And this, these are, they're kind of cute. And this one says, um, only users lose drugs. <laughs> a conclusion is the place where you got tired of thinking. Better living through denial. I do whatever the little voices tell me to do. <laughs> Sounds like the average voter, eh? And another bumper sticker. Uh, your village called. They want their idiot back. And he says, this was the current reigning sticker champ a year ago or so. He says, uh, a day without sunshine is like, uh, you know, night. <laughs> so those are the bumper stickers that were circulating around that time. Now, this is a little, you've, you've all probably heard this one before, this little comparison. It's called Comparative Advantage. I got this one from years ago, 1987. Still have it kicking around from the uh, Nightly Business Report, which was broadcast on PBS way back in 1987. And it was that one that compares the, the various systems. I'll read, read it through once and then go back through it again very quickly uh, just to point out the things that I might correct um, but you, the general sense is there and it goes like this definition of the various systems of government communism you have two cows the government takes both of them and gives you part of the milk socialism you have two cows the government takes one of them and gives it to your neighbor fascism you have two cows. The government takes both of them and sells you the milk. Nazism. You have two cows. The government takes both of them and shoots you. <laughs> Bureaucracy. You have two cows. The government takes both of them, shoots one, milks the other, and pours the milk down the drain. <laughs> and capitalism. You have two cows. You sell one of them, and then you buy a bull. And so that's, that's the one you know. Now, you know, I was looking, I, I don't really think these definitions are quite correct. And some of them are, but some aren't. But the first one, communism, you have two cows. The government takes both of them and gives you part of the milk. Actually, the correct communism definition would have been the fascism one that said you have two cows, the government takes both of them and sells you the milk, okay? That, you know, actually, that is communism. A correct fascism example would be, for example, you have two cows. The government makes you shoot them and then demands that you produce enough milk to support yourself. <laughs> That's, that would be the, the correct one. But, uh, and then, of course, the, the proper one for communism would be the one that they had for fascism. You have two cows, the government takes both of them and sells you the milk, because that's what they're doing. And uh, the bureaucracy one is interesting. It's a good definition, you know, talking about bureaucracy, uh, shooting one of the cows, milking the other, pouring the milk down the drain. It talks about pure activity without productivity which, of course, is the essence of government bureaucracy. But that's, you'll see that in all systems of government. But the other definitions, I basically agree with. And I can't believe it, but we're actually 
already running out of time. So I'm going to have to wrap up for this week. I've got a lot more of these things, all different kinds, including some of those really weird uh, politically correct uh, fairy tales and bedtime stories rewritten. Some of them are pretty funny. But that's all we've got time for this week. And uh, as promised, we'll ho hopefully have both shows up uh, within the next 24 hours, uh, today's and last week's, for those of you who missed last week's show. So that's it for this week, and we hope again that you'll join us again next week in our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And I'm here to talk about leadership today. And if you want to know about a country, you got to look at the first leader, right? You got George Washington in the U.S., you got Johnny McDonald here. A lot of similarities between George and John. When I was researching it, I was amazed to discover. George Washington, a military genius from Virginia. Johnny McDonald, a Scottish lawyer from Kingston. <laughs> Just a coincidence? Just a coincidence? <laughs> <laughs>